This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. One of the demographic trends that has accelerated over the past few years, catalyzed in part by the pandemic-era shift in work patterns, is the suburbanization of America. For the first time, a majority of Americans now live in the suburbs, with more than 45% of millennials reporting that they expect to buy a home there. But the places they're moving to, towns with aging infrastructure, distressed schools, and shaky public finances, are very different from and more diverse than the world of white picket fences many of us imagine. To find out what's happening there, on this episode, associate editor Regina Munch speaks with Philadelphia-based journalist Benjamin Harold about his new book, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Their conversation's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Regina. It's good to see you here, although actually you're recording from your home office in the Philadelphia suburbs. Hi, Dominic. Good to see you. Yes, I am in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is about 14 miles outside of Philadelphia. And I was really interested to read this book because I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. I grew up in Wayne. I've lived in different suburbs. And I saw some of the trends that Harold was describing in the book, the sort of rings of suburbs cycle of suburbia just happening over and over again, farther and farther from a city. So lots of areas in the Philly suburbs that were, when I was growing up, were once bare land or sometimes even unofficially nature preserves are now becoming luxury condos, shopping centers that are thrown up over a year or two. They cater to a certain kind of wealthy homeowner. And that actually gets to a lot of what I think you and Benjamin discuss, right? Isn't it about how the suburbs now are well, as I said in my intro, not really the white picket fence kind of place popular in the American imagination, but places that have become as unsustainable in some ways and places of real struggle. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your conversation. Exactly. He describes the cycle of suburbia that gives white families all the benefits of the suburbs, like good schools, ample services, the kind of stereotype of a safe neighborhood, while denying them to the poorer families that then come in after the white families have fled to start the cycle over again. And often these families are families of color. So Harold talked with families all over the country in different stages of the cycle of suburbia. And he argues that white Americans really can't keep using this cycle to avoid the consequences of their choices and that the fate of suburbia is going to dominate American life for decades. Hmm. Well, why don't we take a listen to your talk? Thanks, Regina. Thanks, Dominic. Benjamin Harold, thank you so much for being on the Commonweal podcast. Thanks for having me. So we think of the suburbs as places of relative wealth, opportunity, safety, and that if you can make it into the suburbs, then life's going to go well for you. But your book talks about a cycle of suburbia that grants those promises to some people and not to others. Could you explain that cycle? Yeah, it actually started in a very personal way for me. So I'm white. I grew up in a white family and I grew up in a ring suburb of Pittsburgh called Penn Hills. Um, And when I was born there in the late 1970s and grew up in the 80s and 90s, it was three quarters white and it was a community that worked really well for families like mine. There was cheap mortgages, there were lots of tax breaks available to homeowners, there was mostly new infrastructure, and there was a really good public school system. And that included the chance to take advanced placement courses and be in a gifted program and things like that. But it also included this like really personal sense that this institution saw me and recognized me and tried to cultivate my gifts. And so one of the stories that I tell in the book, and I still think about all the time, is I was in third grade and I was the kind of kid who would draw on my desk when I got bored. And instead of punishing me, my teacher actually brought in a typewriter from home and said, Ben, when you get bored, don't draw on your desk. 
you just get on the typewriter and do whatever you want. And so I actually started a class newspaper up to date with Room 38. It was like, you can trace my career from those moments of not just opportunity, but grace and kindness. But I left Penn Hills in 1994 and I really didn't look back. I lived in Philadelphia and and became a journalist and was really following stories in everywhere but suburbia around the country. And then in 2015, all of these headlines started coming out of Penn Hills, my hometown. The school district had somehow run up $172 million debt. Teachers were being furloughed. Programs were being cut. Property taxes were going up and home values were stagnating. And it was like, wait, all of a sudden, this deal that worked so well for my family, this kind of generous social contract that we didn't even really have to work for. We, my parents bought a house there and it just came to us. All of a sudden, that was being eroded really dramatically. And it coincided with these sharp demographic shifts. So the Penn Hills Public Schools, 72% white when I graduated back in 1994, were now two-thirds black. And part of what that made me realize was, oh, wait, there's a whole generation of families of color who have come to suburbia searching for that same generous social contract, American dream that my family got so easily. And instead, they found not only are they in schools that punish their children and there's not that sense of belonging and care, but also are on the hook for these monstrous debts and essentially paying for the opportunities that families like mine already extracted. And seeing that in my hometown made me wonder, is this isolated to just Penn Hills and Pittsburgh or is this happening elsewhere? Yeah, in the book, you profile five families from different suburbs around the country and different areas in the country. Why did you choose those cities? And could you tell us about a couple of them? Sure. So part of what makes this kind of arc of suburban development and decline difficult for us to see is it's hard to see if you take a snapshot of an individual community at a single point in time. This is really a process that plays out over generations and over entire metropolitan areas. So I've wanted five communities that kind of trace this cycle from beginning to end. And so I started in North Dallas in Collin County, where there's a new ex-urban community that was really still being built up when I met the Beckers, an affluent conservative white family who moved in there. And in many ways had the traditional trappings of suburbia. It used its zoning code to remain very exclusive. Public schools were highly sought after, et cetera, et cetera. I also followed an African-American family named the Robinsons who live in Gwinnett County, northeast of Atlanta. They, in many ways, thought they were buying into that same cycle of their professional family, multiple advanced degrees, super involved in their kids' education, ended up buying a home largely because it was in the theater pattern of highly regarded schools. But as soon as their oldest son hit middle school, all of these kind of disciplinary issues started hitting where like very minor infractions almost being criminalized. And so they actually had to pull their child out of the school system that they had bought and built their whole lives around. Evanston, Illinois is a progressive college town north of Chicago. It's a place that I went there thinking, okay, here's a place where if we're going to see any place where this people are figuring out how to make this work, it would be Evanston. There was a 50-year history of commitment to desegregation, to racial balance in the schools, again, a very progressive liberal college town. But the mom I met there is a multiracial woman named Lauren Adesina. And she, again, was there for her school. She wanted a safe place for her son. And in first grade, the racial slurs started in school. And so she actually joins a group of activist parents who end up taking control of the school board and trying to put racial equity into the center of the district's operations. On my old street outside of Pittsburgh, I met an African-American mom named Bethany Smith, who had recently bought the house three doors down from my childhood home. And we talked a lot and had to really wrestle with this kind of dynamic of, in many ways, her family bearing the burdens of the opportunities my family already received. And then finally in Compton, California, which is a place that we don't tend to think of as a suburb anymore. 
But in the 40s, 50s, early 60s, it really was this kind of prototypical bedroom community. And this cycle already all played out there. So in the 70s, 80s, Compton, the bottom really fell out as a result of the same cycle that we're seeing in other communities across the country now. And part of what drew me to Compton and to the Hernandez family, who are undocumented immigrants from Mexico, was this sense of there's this rebirth happening in this place where suburbia failed. And now this rebirth is happening, but in a way that's much more inclusive. One phrase has really stuck with me from the book about this cycle, this bargain of suburbia, that our government had essentially paid millions of white families to run away from Black America. How did that happen? How does that work? It's important to remember that the mass suburbanization of the United States, starting in the New Deal and particularly after World War II, this was really a direct result of federal intervention. And first in the economy of putting defense plants in the perimeters of Sunbelt cities through the South as a kind of a protective measure in the war. But what it ended up doing was, you know, infusing billions of dollars into new development in places on the perimeter of cities. And so in a place like Dallas, you saw these suburban communities spring up almost overnight with homes for workers and defense plants. And so the government spurred that. And they also gave shape to this trend because they threw redlining and the way that mortgage loans and guarantees for developers were structured not only allowed racial segregation, but in many places required it. And so baked into the development of American suburbia is this notion that races should be kept separate and that racial change is a signifier of decline. And so that is, it's not just an idea we have, it's really baked into the policy and the institutions of these places. And we're still really wrestling with the effects of that now. The sort of stereotype of suburbia that we have, on the one hand, there's a positive one. On the other, there's a negative one that it's fragment, fragmenting and atomizing of people and people are secretly lonely in suburbs. Is this an accurate characterization and where does this come from and does your study add to that kind of critique? Yeah, I think part of what makes talking about suburbia so tricky is these myths that we have are so deeply embedded. And we have these kind of visions of the picket fences and the walk to school and those kinds of things. And so in most cases really aren't relevant anymore and they haven't been for some time. Like suburbia is, there's a lot of different types of suburban communities from gritty inner ring suburbs just outside cities to these late 19th century streetcar suburbs that have big old estates in terms of, there's lots of different kinds of communities and the demographics of suburbia have been changing dramatically. So suburbia is almost evenly split now between white and non-white families and inside suburban public schools, white children are already a minority. To your question of are those kind of stereotypes accurate? On one hand, I think they're part of what you said there it is very accurate. Like suburbia is a very fractured environment. You have lots of small communities in this like patchwork quilt around a metropolitan area, many of them competing with each other for businesses and residents. And it's just it can make it very hard to see patterns across all of these different communities. But that said, what I saw again and again is that parents not only have this dream for their children that they're pursuing, but have this sense of, oh, wait, these communities aren't working. We have to start organizing. We have to start getting involved. And in many ways, that's a good thing, but it's also, there are these different visions that families have for suburbia. And so we see a lot of that colliding now as well. Yeah, let's talk about that, about how much schools, education, like how these things affect kids played such a big role in your book. So could you talk about some of the educational choices that parents were making for their kids and what that looked like? Yeah, I think the common theme is that not all five parents in all five communities, they are really invested in their children's education and really see education as this gateway to what they hope will be a better life for their kids. And that's a common thread. And I think the second common thread is everyone wants their child to be seen. 
to be recognized, to have personalized attention, to be tended to both in their weaknesses and their needs that need to be built up and in their strengths and their gifts that need to be cultivated and brought out. And so a lot of the search is for that. And I think part of what the suburban families of color that I met were so frustrated by and just so disillusioned by was doing everything right, everything that we're supposed to do. You get the advanced degree, you get a great job, you buy a nice house, you keep your yard nice, all of these things, and still finding that when their child goes to school, there's all of this friction that is partly a result of cultural mismatch partly a result of who that community and institution was designed for. And often it shows up around school discipline. So like the Robinsons are an African-American family outside of Atlanta. And again, like these incidents happen where their son is like tapping his pencil too loudly in class. And that becomes this big issue. Goes to the bathroom for too long, becomes a big issue. And they try to have meetings with the school and the mom and dad go up and they say, listen, we understand your job is really hard. We understand our child is not perfect. We want to work together with you as a team. Having, again, this idea of suburbia as a place where the institutions work for families and they just can't make that connection. The school is constantly putting them off, doing these like almost passive aggressive things that are dismissive of them, not letting them bring extended family into the meetings because those people aren't considered real family. Like all of these little moments. And it reaches a point where mom and dad really feel like the baseline problem that they identified with Gwinnett County Public Schools and their family was that the school system did not treat their child like he was one of their own. And there was a disparity. On that topic, you quote the Jamaican philosopher Charles Mills, who talks about how there are truths that white people have needed not to know about the privileges that they have and their true cost. How has this played out in the book in other ways and in your own life? Yeah, and part of my reckoning with that becomes part of the book. Because again, thinking about my my third grade experience when I'm this kind of mildly disruptive, misbehaving kid and what I receive is opportunities and grace. And for much of my life, I thought that was just normal. That's how suburban schools worked. I didn't have to ask for it or fight for it. It just came to me. And I thought that was the way things were supposed to be. And there was an incident that happened not long after that, when I was in elementary school, where I got invited to what they called Author's Day. And it was like promising young writers from around the community came to a school together. And, you know, I don't really remember much about the writing part, but what I do remember is that I got caught stealing money. And it was like a stupid kid thing to do. There was a purse and I pulled money out and I thought I was being slick, but someone had seen me. And I, so like they pulled me out of the writing workshop and I was just terrified. I was like preparing the full confession in my head. It's like my future's over. And what the adult said to me was, you're a good kid. You have a bright future. Don't screw it up. We'll let your parents take care of discipline. You go back into the writing workshop. And so again, like on one hand, that's like a kindness and a gift that I was grateful, grateful to receive. But once I started hearing the stories of families of color in suburbia, who were having really in many ways the exact opposite experience, much less serious infractions being treated much more harshly and in this kind of accumulating punitive way that really made parents feel like their child was being teed up to be kicked out. Like that disparity, like made me not just look at the problems that families currently face, but also this sense that a lot of the advantages that and opportunities and grace that I received and that many white families in suburbia had received are a product of this racial advantage. And we don't like to talk about that. We don't, we're very uncomfortable talking about white privilege and all of those things. And we often deflect attention from that because it's uncomfortable because we don't want to see where that might lead. If I shouldn't have been invited to author's day or should have got kicked out of author's day, like 
if that had happened, would I still have become a journalist? Would I still gone a book deal? You know, like all you can play it out very easily. And it's something we're very uncomfortable doing. But I think part of what we need to do as a nation in order to address some of these underlying conflicts and tensions in suburbia is like just own that and be honest about what's happening so that we can see experiences side by side. We'll have more of Regina's conversation with Benjamin Harold in a minute. The Catholic Church's understanding of gender, sex, and sexuality has emerged as a crisis for many in the pews, a rallying point for others, and a deal-breaker for younger adults who step away from Catholicism. In a new series of virtual seminars on Catholicism and gender, important voices from Commonweal Magazine join thinkers from across the Catholic landscape to engage with contemporary questions and chart potential pathways forward. This series is a collaboration between Commonweal and the Center for Catholic Studies at Fairfield University. These hour-long web events will be live-streamed and archived for reference on the Catholic Studies website. The first, between Molly Wilson-O'Reilly and Ellen Koenig, took place earlier this month. Stay tuned for the next events in this series, featuring Natalia Imperatori-Lee in mid-March and Craig Ford in early April. To register and for more information, visit fairfield.edu cs. Why do you think the suburbs have become such a nexus of disagreement and anger in recent years over things like COVID policy, how to teach history, those kinds of things? What does it say about schools and what suburbia means to us? I think it's like uh, important to trace the roots of like, why do we even have a mass suburbanized country? Like, why did all of this happen? And because the communities are not that old when you think about it. Many of them are 70, 80, 90 years old, which is a couple generations into their life cycle. And what we have to remember is that a lot of these communities were built for a specific type of family, middle class, upwardly mobile white families who are young and have children. And so those communities often tended to work very well when they remained exclusive. They kept other types of families out by intention, by design, and they were able to lavish those young middle-class white families with children, lavish them with opportunities and benefits. But we have two things. So one, the true cost of that was always being pushed off into the future. Infrastructure wasn't being repaired. There was not investment in ongoing maintenance and renewal. Just push that cost into the future. And then families leave after their children are done with school and then someone else comes and inherits that. So part of it is that dynamic of how suburbia was designed. And then there's been these kind of massive demographic changes as well. And so the suburbs have gone from 79% white to 55% white in the span of really just a couple of decades. And those trends are all accelerating. And in many suburban communities, white families are now the minority and in some cases not really present at all. And so I think to your question about the conflicts that we're seeing, there's two things happening. One, the demographics changes are accelerating so rapidly that you have different families with different needs and different visions of what their American dream looks like kind of coming into a community. And those same families who once would have fled demographic change, moved to a new community further outside of the central city, are no longer able to do that because of the housing market, because of commute times, environmental and climate reasons. And so you have these families who have very different visions of what suburbia should be doing now stuck in the same communities and having to fight it out. Maybe this is common, but I hadn't really thought of it this way, of different rings of suburbs, like growing yeah. out when one kind of gets too expensive to keep the cycle going, you move out to the, you start building in the next ring. And I'm in suburban Philadelphia and that's happening in this area too. And it's it's not new affordable housing being built, it's new luxury condos and stuff just being built now and out. 
Could you explain the ring system? Yeah, and I'm also based in Philadelphia, so I know that pattern well from this this kind of metropolitan area. But I think what you would see is that a lot of those first post-war suburbs that were built coinciding with World War II were really you know, what we call now call inner ring, kind of right on the periphery of a city, right? Like the community I grew up in, Penn Hills outside of Pittsburgh, it shares a border with the city of Pittsburgh. When my family moved out and my kind of generation of white families moved out, what they tended to do was rather than face the bills that were coming due for all of this infrastructure that hadn't been repaired, for the schools that needed to be rebuilt, for the kind of new services that needed to be provided for new families, rather than staying and investing in that and being part of it, essentially just every 20, 25 years or so, there's a new community built one ring further out. And so in many cities, what you'll see is now three, four rings like that. And Dallas becomes this really powerful example because the Beckers, the white family that I follow there, they end up moving from a second ring suburb that's diversifying very rapidly out to an exurban community that's 40 miles from downtown. And it maintains its kind of economic and racial exclusivity because it's so far out and because it has such a tight zone and code and housing market. But that pattern is really like we are running up against the limits of that pattern, both for land use reasons, for economic reasons and for demographic reasons. And so what we see now is like those rings are there, but all of them are changing very rapidly. And these conflicts are playing out pretty much throughout the whole system. Yeah, I think the last chapter of your book is called No More Away, meaning that there's no more away to escape cynically from poverty or the city or that from that, but also from the truth of the past, that there's no more a way to escape to. White America can't just keep starting the cycle over and over again. So I think that's in many ways the heart of the book is really about of this sense of we are, I argue that we're really just beginning this process, like the unraveling that's happening in suburbia is, has reached a point now where we notice it. It's unavoidable. Like when you drive around your community, you see these patterns shifting from one ring to the next. But also this sense of, like you said, we have to wrestle with these truths. Like we're being confronted with them daily and there's no running away literally or figuratively for it. And part of why that's so challenging is, again, grounded in the history of the country and of suburbia itself, because this idea that we can always just move out to the frontier and start over new and leave history behind. That's a very deep rooted idea in American culture and in suburbia. We have to reckon with that foundational idea. And that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's really tied in with their sense of what it means to be an American and what it means to have the opportunity at a good life. So you said that the confrontation will define the next few decades of American life. What do you think the result of that is going to be or could be? Well, I think that the two forces that we see in tension with each other is one, this idea that America can finally become a true, real multiracial democracy, where there's not this kind of like systemic advantages baked in for one group over another, for white families or the rich, like that there's this sense of that promise of equal opportunity, success being based on merit, everyone gets a fair shot. That promise can actually be really extended to all. And we do see like early fragile signs of that in places like Compton, California, which again is this place that we have a lot of negative associations with. But when I spent time there, at Jefferson Elementary School, what I saw was a school that was entirely black and brown, largely Hispanic, many immigrant families, many children who were still learning English, some who had parents who were undocumented. 
And they were getting that same kind of suburban generous deal that I received as a kid. So the boy that I follow there, Jacob Hernandez, he's in fourth grade. He's starting his own class newspaper, which is like totally melted my heart. But he's also like doing engineering challenges. He's doing robotics competitions. He's making movies. He's doing mock trials. And you see this sense of that kind of not only resources, but care and attention and tending to and cultivating those children's gifts happening in a far more inclusive way. But they're really isolated examples and they're very fragile in many ways. So I think there's this one strand of trying to bend America in that direction and suburbia really being the front lines for that. But there's also a lot of resistance to that. And we've seen that popping up with all these fights around schools teaching critical race theory and starting diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and a whole kind of constellation of issues that fit in with that. And in many ways, I think it's accurate for us to understand that as a backlash or a resistance to this idea that America needs to change to become a true multiracial democracy in the sense of we like the established order. We recognize that's being challenged on multiple fronts and we're defending it very vigorously. And so those fights, that's a constant throughout American history. And part of what I argue now is that suburban communities are really now the front lines in this long running fight. Could you talk about the ways some of the parents that you profile became active in the in school boards and in, in making either in, in responding, I guess, to the transformation of trying to either build or not build a multiracial democracy. Yeah, Evanston, Illinois is a great example of that. So again, this is the college town north of Chicago where Northwestern is based. And Lauren Adesina is the mom I follow there. And she's she has a son who ends up getting called racial slurs in first grade. And that she's already an active, engaged parent and she's involved in a lot of issues. And so that really prompts her to get involved with this group of progressive parent activists who are really at the leading edge of a lot of these fights that we see all over the country. What they do is essentially gain a majority on the school board and say, we're going to put racial equity at the center of everything that we do. And that's from budgeting to hiring to curriculum to after school activities to these little kind of micro interactions between families and staff. And so on one hand, it becomes this really powerful example of what that progressive vision looks like in practice. And you see some really significant changes start to happen. But on the other hand, what you also see is a backlash, even within a liberal community. So this kind of like progressives vision of progressives of color kind of implementing their vision really upsets a lot of the older white liberals in the community who end up challenging and pushing back. And so I think that kind of tension with parents getting involved and saying, hey, like this is a, a local issue, like this is my child, my family, my school system, and the school board politics reflecting these tensions that we now see playing out on a national level as the presidential race gears up as well. You start the book with a quote from Lewis Mumford that the suburb served as an asylum for the preservation of an illusion. And those, the parents that you're talking about are trying to shatter that illusion. I thought they were a good illustration of how to do that. Yeah, very much so. And I think part of what their own disillusionment results from is having their own kind of sense of safety and we don't have to care about it. Like part of the idea of the suburbs is you set it and forget it. Like you get the house and you get the good schools and then you just can live your life and things work for you. And it's understandable that we want that kind of community for ourselves. But when you run into the realities of your child not being safe, 
being called slurs, to not being reflected in the curriculum, to not having the same opportunities as his or her neighbors. Like all of these things really start to puncture and pierce these myths and illusions that bring us to suburbia. And so on one hand, the title of the book, Disillusioned, is about that process of like really becoming feeling stuck and disappointed of like this community that I thought was one thing is really another and there's nowhere else I can go. But on the other hand, it's this sense of, okay, because we're having this reckoning, because these tensions are boiling up, we can finally start to see suburbia as it really is, like shed our own illusions so that we can see the truth. And that's often hard, but it's also good and powerful. Benjamin Harold, thank you so much for coming on the Common Wheel podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Benjamin Harold's new book is Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs, and it's available now from Penguin Press. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed our theme music and David Dalt did the editing. Remember, if you like what you hear on the Commonweal Podcast, please tell your friends and family to listen as well, and rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 